So this, <coughs> this evening, I would like to talk about ethics and compassion, as this is toward the end of our retreat. Because I think very much the practice is about developing wisdom, but also very much compassion. And then often, as a bit of a kind of a cold appearance, we're sitting all the time, and it looks like, you know, we don't talk much about love and compassion. But I would say that in the Zen tradition, especially in Korea, this is a very strong basis, a very strong environment in which when we practice in the monastery, the aspect of compassion, of uh, practice, being about that, is very strong. And I kind of pondered about that a little uh, some time ago, because a few years ago I went to a conference on Buddhism, religion and ecology, and I was a Western representative of Buddhism, and I was meeting my uh, Eastern Buddhist representative, and together they are going to write this very important pamphlet about Buddhism and ecology, to join with the other religious, Christian, Islamic, Hindus. And there was a little trouble between me and my uh, confederate Buddhist, because <coughs> we kind of, at some point, we kind of hit this little point where we wondered, you know, why would we be ecological, why would we be ethical? And I would, myself, I said, well, we would be ethical because of compassion. I said, no, 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 you are ethical because of the fear of rebirth. <laughs> and I did not find that a very convincing argument myself. <laughs> and so it was very interesting, but I kept saying, but what about compassion? They kept saying, what about karma, rebirth, and guilt, and fear? And it seemed that they saw ethics very much within this kind of, you know, fear. You know, you, know, you, you are good because you're afraid of the bad consequence. And otherwise you are ethical because you feel guilty if you don't do, you know, the proper things in connection to society. But, yeah, personally I could not buy it. But I thought, well, they are, I mean, real Buddhists because they are Sri Lankan Buddhists and I'm just, you know, these kind of downgraded Western Buddhists. So maybe it's because I am Western that I have kind of suddenly this weird idea about ethics, that it is all about compassion and nothing to do with uh, rebirth. And recently, actually working on the translating, uh, again, kind of working on the text I worked on before, the Bodhisattva precepts, which are very much the ethics in uh, Korean uh, Zen Buddhism, I realized, no, 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 no. I think ethics is compassion because of this text, not because I am Western and I have this kind of strange idea. Because why I became interested in this text in Korea, which is of various precepts for the way of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva being the practitioner who aspired to awakening for the sake of everybody, for kind of very much an altruistic kind of uh, movement. And the thing is that as monks and nuns, we would recite these uh, precepts, 58 of them, uh, at least once a month, if not twice a month. 
And at the beginning, of course, I did not understand anything. I took them without knowing what they were, but this is what things you do sometimes. But over time, I understood the Korean, and over time, I could start to understand them, and I could start to see, ah, they do this, they do that, Master Kuzan do this, and that because of these precepts. So I could say that there was this whole compassionate ethics which really, in a way, made a difference to the environment of the monastery in comparison, actually, to some of the way the people would be outside in the ordinary life in Korea. And one thing that really, I mean, one, the first thing I noticed was when we would go to the field with Master Kuzan, and whenever there was an animal, like if there was a car passing by near him, he would go to the car and he would pat it and he would say something. And I thought, well, what is he doing? You know, and I saw him doing this several times. I thought, what does he do? And then finally I asked him, you know, what do you do? What do you say to the cow? And he said, oh, it's because of the Bodhisattva precept. He said that you must rescue all beings. You must wish for all beings to attain awakening. So that's what I wish to the cow, that the cow attain awakening. That's what I said, because this is what you're supposed to, to say, sotto voce. Another thing that's really, in a way, for me was very challenging, in a way, was this ritual of forgiveness they had in Korea. In Korea, in the monastery, if you make a mistake, the only thing you need to do is to go and bow to somebody a little superior in the hierarchy, you bow three times, you say, you make a mistake, and this is it. Never ever to be mentioned again, to be talked about, this is finished. And to me, it was very much against my belief. You know, if somebody does something bad, they must suffer for it, <laughs> and they must get aggravation for it, and you can't just forget it. Because in a way, when we forgive in the West, I think often we forgive, but we don't forget. I think that's often what happens. We say, oh yes, I forgive you, but I keep it in the back and I will serve it to you later on <laughs> at an appropriate date. But with them, no. It was, I was just amazed. And, and the Westerner, we could never do it. You know, like, you know, Master Cousin would say to somebody, oh, you did that, that was not good, it was not appropriate. And we would go on huge explanation of why really we did it, but really, and da-da-da, and the Master would be kind of, you know, what's the matter with them? Can they just pass three times and, you know, <laughs> we get this over, you know, we can, we can, we can move on. Because for them, when you bow three times, you say, yes, I made a mistake, yes, I recognize that this was not a good idea, it, it had, you know, not such good consequences, and I will try not to do it in the, in the future. That's, in a way, the context. And then the person accepts, in a way, believing that you have the potential for awakening and the Buddha nature, yes, you know, they think, okay, in the future, they will do better. So, in a way, there is, it comes from that faith position. But yes, you see, and then you can move on. And to me, this way, actually, this is amazing to do that. Can we kind of consider that we could do that? And actually, this comes from one of the Bodhisattva precepts, which says, 
refrain from being angry, treat well someone who asks for forgiveness. And in it, in the precept, it says, the duty of the Bodhisattva, so the duty of someone who aspires to awakening for the sake of all, is to be kind and not quarrelsome, and to be compassionate. So one should not abuse any living creature, and so at that level one should be, in a way, be careful about the way, to me this is very much about not causing harm, to be careful about the way we are in the world, and then there is, you know, these precepts were written in the 4th century in China. So this is nearly, yeah, 1500 years ago. Long time ago. And in the precept it also says, one should not vent anger on an inanimate object. Who has <laughs> <laughs> not kicked the tire of the car or the computer? Well, they already did this in China 1500 years ago. Presumably they kicked all the things, less modern things. So in a way, we have not changed much. I think these ethics are very relevant, you know, because we don't change much as human beings in what we do and how we do things. And so then he goes on to say, if someone comes to beg forgiveness from you, and your anger is not appeased, then it is a serious kind of a, 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 a kind of something which is a serious kind of a thing, thing for a miss kind of deed for a bodhisattva. So in a way, to, to look at ourselves, if someone come ask for our forgiveness, if somebody say, "I am sorry," do we really accept that they're sorry or? How do we take that? I think that's where very much that precept is about. Then I would like to look at some of these precepts and, you know, with the connection to our life, to our practice, and also, in a way, how, where the precept comes from. Because to me, the precept is very much about ethics, it's about reflection. It's not about rules and regulations. It's very much about us with the awareness from meditation looking at what we do, our action, our intention. The first precept is a very familiar one, refrain from taking lives, in a way, do not cause harm. But what is interesting is that it says, do not perform the act, do not cause someone else to do it, do not do it in a roundabout way, do not create the causes and conditions for it to happen, and do not develop a means so that it can happen. Fairly thorough. Fairly thorough. It's not just about don't kill people or don't hurt people. It's kind of saying, wait a minute, you might not hurt people directly, but sometimes you cause someone to cause hurt instead of you. I think we very much do this when we gossip. You know, when we gossip about somebody. And we kind of often, we make it a little bigger. We kind of, you know, like to kind of make it a little more dramatic. Oh, yes, they're terrible, aren't they? You know, and then you kind of create a certain energy. And often that comes back to the person. And then it might get hurt. And then we kind of do it that way. Or do we do it in a roundabout way? That we kind of, we could act, we could do something, and things will not turn out in such a bad way. But we think, oh, well, this is not my business. And well... If they get a hard time, well, it could be a good lesson for them, you know. 
and in a way we cause are in a roundabout way. So in a way to kind of reflect, are we creating the causes and conditions so that harm can arose? And to me, in a way, these kind of ethics is not about what I would call passive ethics, which I would see in rule and regulation. I don't do this and I'm okay. But it's in a way, it seems to me a kind of active ethics. How can I not create harm? How can I not create the causes and conditions for creating harm? And to me, this is very much what we do in meditation when we cultivate awareness. And he goes on to say that the duty of a bodhisattva is to be compassionate toward others and to lead them to liberation. And it's true that if you kill them, then you really cannot lead them to liberation. (laughs) (laughs) Then there is another one which is interesting, which is refrain from telling lies. And again, it's the same thing. Do not do it yourself. Do not cause someone else to lie for you. Do not do lie in a roundabout way, do not create the causes and conditions for lying or develop a means to do that. And even more than that, it says, do not convey the impression that you saw something you did not see or see something that you did not see through physical gesture or mental intention. I mean, this is getting subtle. And it's kind of, because often we feel, oh yes, I don't tell lies, I'm okay. I am a good Buddhist. But sometimes, you kind of, just the way you kind of behave, the way you look at somebody, you kind of look totally innocuous, you know, like looking, yes, yes, you know. And then you think, gosh, I'd like to kill that. Oh, yeah, what could I do to really make them suffer? But you look really so nice. <laughs> or kind of looking, some kind of, you know, what is our mental intention? How are we kind of, in a way, matching up? Or how, what is going on there? Kind of looking a little. That lying is not, to, in a way, only about telling the truth. It's also looking a little at how we communicate, also through our body also in a way what we say within our mind and how that sometimes also sets in motion certain things. Then there is another one which is interesting for what it says in the commentary which is refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. So it basically means this is you might, that common Buddhist thing which is you know to be careful of not overly kind of putting yourself up, and by doing that, then putting other down. You know, they're okay, but look at me, you know, I am so much better. What is it where it is? But in it, he goes on to say, which I think is fairly challenging, it is our duty to take on ourselves the slander directed toward others. I would like to know if anybody in this room is ready to take the slander directed toward others. I already don't like if somebody slander me. I mean, how am I going to take the slander of others which is not, you know, mine? Interesting, but it's kind of, you know, challenging us. Challenging, would we be ready to take, you know, the blame for somebody else? Would we be ready to kind of, you know, or not? To be even considering the idea is interesting to look how, you know, we're very tight. We want to keep to ourselves. We're kind of very 
kind of self-cherishing in that way. The other thing is here is transfer whatever is unpleasant to myself. I mean, already I don't like what is unpleasant naturally coming to me. How am I going to take any that is kind of on top? And this, in a way, that's what it is kind of questioning. You know, that often for ease and comfort, we kind of easily kind of let things go or kind of make things unpleasant for others, I think. And so it's kind of saying, you know, would you be ready to be a little, even minutely uncomfortable, <laughs> taking a little unpleasantness so somebody could be in a more pleasant state? Could we even consider that? And then there is the third one is give whatever is good to others. Whatever that is good that I get, can I give this to others? Can I share it with others? So I think in some way these precepts to me again are not rule and regulation. They kind of often quite challenging. Looking at how we behave, what we do, what will we prepare to do, what we even consider that we would do. Another one is care well for those who are sick. So very, again, very practical. Those precepts on the whole are very practical. And they're very much about things we can do. We even go on to, you know, do not leave fire or whatever, so that you don't kind of hurt insects in the field. But in this one for the sick, they say care and provide for the sick as if they were the Buddha himself. So that if somebody is ill, Instead of thinking, you know, oh, you know, it's such a hassle, they're ill again, or oh, la, la, they're complaining, or this is difficult. It's saying, you know, can you see that person with suffering in that moment as if they were the Buddha? And how would, how would you care if the Buddha was here? If he was, you know, if your teacher was ill, if somebody who's very precious to you is ill, you would want to care for them. You would want in a way to help them in their distress. So they say, in a way, when somebody is ill, you know, we realize our suffering, realize how painful it is. And can you open yourself to that person? Then there is, refrain from getting angry, do not strike others, do not take revenge. And in that way they say, do not repay anger with anger or blows by blows. And one thing which is interesting we do sometimes in meditation, so you sit in meditation on a retreat, you have lots of time to spend thinking, don't you? And one of the things you do, or some people seem to be doing, is that they sit there and they remember something which was so painful that person did, that was nasty, wasn't it? So you kind of obsess a bit about that. And then there is this interesting movement to plotting revenge. <laughs> and I'm going to meet them, they're going to say that, and I'll say that. And that's really to them. And you kind of, you know, when you sit in meditation looking very kind of Buddha-like, and you're plotting the best way you're going to get that person. This is, you know, kind of sometimes looking at that, you know, looking at that movement. I want to get them. I want to kind of revenge. I mean, revenge is a very, I mean, a very natural thing we want. You know, things must be fair. Things must be equilibrated. But often it causes so much suffering because each time generally, you know, more suffering, then more revenge, more suffering. And there is a lot of suffering in the world in that way. But in the present here, what it also says, 
one point which I think is interesting for us is do not be of called your servant because that would be to abandon the compassionate mind and you might say servants I don't have any servants I wish I had some servants so no problem I'm not going to beat them or call them I have sorted with this one but actually what are the servants of the modern time they are the service industry and the people who phone you you know, wanting to sell you one more time the double glazing window. <laughs> or they are the people you phone because your computer is not working and can they, you know, explain. Or you go to the post office and, you know, they're not very fast. Or you have some complaint or reclamation and the person is in the desk and... And we can get so angry, so fast, actually, kind of on the phone, in front of the desk or wherever. And to me, this is what this precept is about, you know, not beating or scolding people in the service industry. Can that become a practice for us, you know, when we cannot get so irritated, so frustrated, and we want, you know, to pass this on somebody with the poor, helpless subject of this kind of possibly conglomerate bureaucracy that they can't do much about. I love this conversation when you say, it must be this way. And they say, but the regulation is ta 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 and then you kind of keep going and they just say the regulation is ta 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 so you kind of get very angry with them a poor thing, what can they do? <laughs> the regulation is ta 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 and lots of things like this happen in France it's a great, <laughs> great opportunity there, bureaucracy so in a way for us to kind of you know, reflect there how are we reacting, how are we coming this is also part of the practice, very much that's what we're cultivating here, is in order to, for us to take out there and to really put into practice in that way. So, what is interesting about these Bodhisattva precepts, I won't go more into them, there are 58 and it's just too many of them. But they are recited in the monastery once or twice a month, and the lay people take them once a year. And so you take them again and again. So it's not a precept you take for life, but it's something you take as a reminder. So very much this ethics is about, in a way, our aspiration, our intention. So this is what we intend, this is what we aspire to. So it, there are more points of reflection, and not so much rule and regulation. Today I'm going to follow these 58 rules, so, but more how can I reflect on my action, on my intention, and how my, in a way, what my thought influenced my action and the way I talk, the way I am with people. This is very much, I think ethics is very much about relationship, and how do we relate to ourselves and others. And this leads me to compassion, because, as I said, I think ethics, you know, why are we ethical? I mean, of course there is ethics in terms of rule of law for a society to live together. But to me, ethics is very much about how do we relate to others? Do we want to relate in a kind of matter-of-fact manner? Or do we want to relate in a very live, kind of vivid, creative way? And I would say in a compassionate way. So that there is compassion for self, compassion for others. And so in the relationship, there is a certain openness. Because I would say, compassion 
is our natural innate ability to respond to suffering. Generally, if somebody suffers, we respond to that. We want to, we feel for that. We know what it is to suffer. Because when we suffer, if we have suffered either mental pain, emotional pain, or physical pain, then we know that suffering has two aspects. One is that it is painful. And another one is that we are alone in our pain. Nobody can experience our pain for us. However empathetic they are, they can be there for us, they can support us, but we are alone in our pain. And to me that's why if somebody suffers, in a way we have this natural inclination to be compassionate, to move towards the person who is suffering. And recently there was this, I very kind of, just before we came uh, to this retreat, Stephen went somewhere to, <coughs> I won't say what he went to buy, we in Bordeaux, he went to buy some wine. <laughs> Anyway, so on his way, I mean, he was going to buy some wine, he never did. Because on the way there, there was this lady, old lady, 89 years old, our neighbor, who was walking her dog along the road, and the dog kind of flew off, and a car hit it, and then it fell by a ditch next to a pond of water, and so Stephen was there, and then the mayor was passing by. So the mayor was also going to meet him, to this winery thing, kind of left, did not go to the meeting and kind of went to get some gloves to retrieve the dog who was biting everybody who was trying to approach because he was in great pain. Then it had to be taken to the vet, so Stephen went with the vet because I was in my gardening gear and I kind of came a little late on the scene. And so off they went to the, he went to the vet with the old lady. Then he came back two hours later. Then we said, yes, tomorrow we can take you to the surgeon, further up. And after that, the neighboring lady, kind of now every day, twice a day, she goes and gives the medicine to the dog because the lady is old and will not remember correctly. And what I like about this is that, in a way, something happened. There was suffering for the dog, for the old lady. And then everybody came together with compassion. Because everybody responding to the suffering, everybody left whatever they were going to do, to in a way be there for that person, for that animal. And then afterwards there is still suffering. So then we all try to be available to that, to be available to the dog, to the person. And to me this is because there is this natural ability to respond. Something happens, you respond to the suffering. In the same way with the tsunami, where there was this huge response. Because people felt for the suffering of the people. And this is why when we went to India on this Buddhist tour, in the footstep of the Buddha, we were guiding 25 people for 15 days. And I was guiding, I was more like for the practice, even for the cultural, historical, and there was a, an Indian sentence there, who is also a meditation teacher, but he was a cultural guide and also logistics. And Shantam, at the beginning of the trip, gave us a test. And that was a test to our compassion, actually. Because he asked us for three days in India not to give anything to the beggar whatsoever. So he said, for three days you don't give. 
And as soon as you enter India, you're faced with beggars. And we were beggars of all kinds of types, old ladies, disabled children, everything. I mean, we kind of get encounter them because they generally gather in pilgrim spot. I mean, we are soft target. And this was very difficult for everybody. But he said, be aware of that movement. Be aware that you want to respond and be just aware of that feeling of wanting to give and not being able to give. And so kind of sometimes some of us, when he was not there, would kind of still give something. But generally we tried to kind of do what he said. Because it's very kind of, you know, you have so much suffering in India, presented in so many different ways that you kind of, and all of us kind of were Buddhist, meditator, and generally give to charity, and of course we wanted to give. And it was very interesting to have that challenging practice, in a way. And after that, after three days, to really talk about it, and for each of us to ponder on that. What does it mean to encounter suffering? What does it mean to respond with compassion? And to respond also with wise compassion? And then for each of us to find ways to kind of, you know, be able to respond in some way. At the same time, knowing we could not answer the suffering in India. It's so, kind of, especially in the places we were, it was just so incredible. But that was, I could see, and what was interesting for me was to see the innate response that when you are confronted by suffering. So I think I would say that one of the first things about compassion is a recognition of equality in life and suffering. That you recognize it's not just about me, but because I think if you're very self-obsessed, then you cannot, in a way your compassion, your natural compassion won't come out. But if you, the practice, I think, helps you to go beyond this me and start to open to the world, to kind of notice other people, other lives, and recognize we are equal in life, equal in suffering. I suffer, and people suffer too. Because often, when we suffer, what is our reaction? I like it. Our first reaction when we suffer is, why me? When you say, why me, what are you saying? Why not somebody else? Basically, that's what you kind of partly say. So in a way, looking at that, you know, why me? You know, it's, it's kind of, there is so much suffering. You know, so much to, we have to get some of it, it seems to me. This is part of life, of the world. And so I would say compassion is also a practice, a training. Because often I think people feel it's just a feeling. That if I feel compassionate, then I follow it. If I don't feel like it, then too bad. But it seems to me, as practitioner, as meditator, to me this is something I intentionally cultivate, to try to have a compassionate, attentive, aware attitude, so that I am not just oriented toward myself, but I want to, in a way, be there for others. But in order to be there for others, I must be aware of them. I must open to them. I must listen to them. I must kind of be... I, I must be see them where they are, be interested. I would say, in a way, in compassion, they need to be in interest in the other. And so, to cultivate that, because also the compassion is an antidote to cruelty, because often, when are we cruel? 
when actually the person becomes abstract, becomes an image. And then we can be very cruel to people, as long as we keep people very abstracted, or animals, or the earth, or whatever. And to me this is why it's so important, this compassion, this feeling for the other, for life, to recognize that the person is not abstracted. And it's interesting when you don't like somebody, or you have a really hard time with somebody, and you generally avoid them. So you don't talk to them, you don't look at them, you don't... You try to avoid them. And what happens when you try to avoid them is that they become more and more cardboard images. And so you, in that way you can see more and more. They're so bad. They're so terrible. But if you meet the person, if you talk to them, they're just like any human being. They just, you know, they make mistakes, they kind of, you know, sometimes wrong judgment or whatever. But the more you don't need, the more you don't see, you don't connect with the person, then the more abstract they become, and the less compassion you will have for them. It's very interesting how this kind of hatred kind of starts, I think, from this abstraction. So for me, the opposite of abstraction is this engaged, creatively engaged compassion, really meeting the world, meeting people, meeting others. But in that compassion toward others, we meet the human being with breathing like ourselves, but it doesn't mean that we accept all what they do. Because often people think, oh, you know, if I'm compassionate, then I must accept everything. Well, if somebody is picking you up, I would say, don't accept it. Because, oh, poor thing, he has his trouble. Well, I can't be helped. He has to beat somebody. He can beat me. I don't think this is a very kind of healthy way to look at it. That, you know, we have compassion for the person who does the negative act, but we do not condone the action. You know, when we try to see, where first we get out. You know, if somebody is aggressive, then if you can't stop it, you get out. Or you kind of take people who are aggressed away from them. So in a way, to, to see the wisdom must come with the compassion. This is not a blank, oh yes, everybody is fantastic, and then oh, I have compassion for all of them. We have compassion for every life. We also look at the circumstances, the conditions around that life. I think this is essential. And I think that's what, in a way, Shantam was trying to make us realize when we were in India. And especially he was saying, if you give to the children, if you give to the children, then they will never be tempted to, to study and to work to have a proper job, to do proper study. Because they see, because if they one Westerner give them, let's say, a bunch of rupees, then they, they'll wait for the next Westerner to give them a bunch of rupees. But who knows when the next time will come? They still wait and wait. So in a way for us not to cultivate that. So that's one thing we're kind of trying to be very careful about. So in a way to see, kind of the, com- the compassion comes also with the wisdom. I would also say in the compassion there is availability. The fact that we are available to the other. <coughs> that in a way we are committed to the other in their pain. And this is very much an idea in Gabriel Marcel, who is an existential French philosopher. And he was saying, you know, because sometimes there is suffering and you have the feeling, you, you know, so he was saying, somebody is ill, 
And they go to the hospital and think, oh yes, no, I feel for you, I want to be there for you, I will visit you in the hospital. But then five days passes and you don't really feel like, like going to the hospital because you don't like hospital and they really frighten you or whatever. But he said, because you're available to the pain of the other, you still go nevertheless. Because although the feeling is not there, and although you're afraid, you still want to be there for that person. To me, this is an important also aspect of compassion. But this is compassion, in a way, is the intention to be with, to listen, to be there. But I think we have to also remind ourselves compassion is for ourselves too. But when we talk of compassion in Buddhism, it's very much as much for ourselves as for others. Because sometimes we really, in a way, think of compassion just in terms of others. But I think to me there is a wide spectrum. And sometimes, in a way, we use compassion to beat other people with. Oh, you're not compassionate. To me, this is not compassion. <laughs> to, to use compassion in that way. And it's very important to see that sometimes we have to have more compassion for ourselves when we heal ourselves. And sometimes we can have more compassion for others, just think of them, not think of us whatsoever. And sometimes we are in the middle. And I think it's very important to see there is a whole spectrum in compassion. It's very important to see what are our, our limits in our compassion. How much can we give? Sometimes we cannot give anything because of various conditions and circumstances. So to be careful there. So I would say meditation to me is very much part of being in the world and that compassion is part of that and, and to me it's more about responding creatively in compassion. It is not just in a way, I must be good. I am a Buddhist, I must be good, I must find somebody to be compassionate towards. We have to be careful with that. But more to respond creatively in our situation. It could be to neighbors, it could be to some causes, it could be to many different things. To me, it's very much about what we're interested in, what we encounter. When, whenever we go to South Africa, we kind of meet a lot of suffering. And then, of course, we try to do something. People kind of say, oh, come to help and come to see this person. And you feel the suffering at that moment. So, in a way, you do that because you encounter it, you meet it. So I think, in a way, it can be in our neighbor, like with the dog, or it can be somewhere in South Africa or wherever. I think it's important that we are open in these different creative ways. But what is interesting sometimes in the spiritual path is that there seems to be this ambiguity with practice and compassion. Once I was doing some research with Buddhist nuns and I went back to Korea and that was my question. What about practice and what about compassion? And that's one question I asked to one old nun and she was done a lot of practice and she was really respected. And I said, what about practice and compassion? And she said, practice, compassion, forget it. Until you awaken, no point. A little drastic, I thought. <laughs> but actually there is that stream. There is no doubt there is one stream like that in Buddhism. 
But the idea is that in order to really be truly wise and compassionate, you really have to be awakened. But, I mean, this I think personally is a bit absolute. But if you, as a, a, a nun, Buddhist nun said to me, you know, if I wait to be an awaken to help people, then they have to wait for a long time. I would rather do it now. So in a way to see that sometimes we kind of in a little of this challenge, how much do I focus on my practice and how much do I focus on being there for others. And sometimes that can be a little of a paradox or challenge. That people will say, oh you go to do your retreat, this is not compassionate, if you were compassionate you would be stay there for me. You know, there is often this, sometimes this. But in a way we have to see that sometimes the practice will help us to be more compassionate. And that's what we need to do. And sometimes the practice itself will be to be compassionate in that moment. And to me again, one does not exclude the other. I would say it's just when it is appropriate. Again, it's for us to see how it works. But I think this is one of the paradox of the practice in a way. Also I think what we can look a little at is the obstacle to compassion. I mean recently I got this uh, huge email from somebody who likes to, when she goes traveling and she was with our group, she likes to write about the, the travel. She wrote about the 15 day in India and she had little comments on us, the guide. <laughs> So of course I went to look for my little comments and she said something strange in a way. She said, I'd never seen somebody so fast and effective in our compassion. I thought this is a strange thing to say because I did not think I was doing anything special when I was there. But I could see that I was, my job, I saw it very quickly on this 15 days for these 25 people and we were all getting ill and all kind of things was to be there for them. I had nothing else to do. I was not busy, everything was taken care of logistically so I mean I really, apart from practicing, I have really not much to do apart from being compassionate toward these 25 people. <laughs> and it just entailed to be aware of them, to keep an eye, so I would kind of keep an eye a bit like mother hen. Ah, how is this one today? So I would go and say, oh, this one is a little picky today. So, <laughs> so, and I think that's why she says that, because I had nothing else to do, but I had nothing which would stop me from doing that. Because I think, in a way, one of the things which is an obstacle to compassion is often busyness. When we're so busy, you know, we will be very busy, we have this to do, that to do, and somebody is suffering, I don't have the time, later, later, maybe in two weeks, oh yeah, yeah. I have a little kind of, you know, yeah, window of opportunity then, I'll be compassionate, but not till then. You know, sometimes I think we have to see in our busy world, how busyness sometimes really, you know, we dry our heart. So to be a little careful with that, and also fear. To be afraid, I think, is a great obstacle to compassion. When we're afraid, then we, we're so afraid, we're so self-protective, that in a way we cannot go out to others. So in a way, to kind of notice that, to kind of be kind to ourselves, but look, what are the conditions that helps me to be more compassionate or less compassionate?
and my time is up so I think I'll stop here and just one last remark is that in a way this is tomorrow our last full day and I would really encourage you to see this as a great opportunity to continue to practice wisdom and compassion to me what I find interesting about the day before the last full days is that you know finally the, re- the meditation really I think works you really kind of start to really feel settled you feel settled and really you can start it, it's really kind of dissolving the holding the grasping and we see it and there is so much e- it's so much easier generally and then the last full day arrives and suddenly we're not here. It's very strange. Like for one minute, really sitting there. Yes, yes, yes. That. And so in a way, could we not make this too fast? Wait for Saturday morning and to really see that this is such an opportunity for us to sit here. When is the next time you will be able to be here to really focus on meditation, to really be calm in this supportive environment? So I would really encourage you to use every precious minute to be alive, to be breathing, and also to do the meditation and to be fully present and in a way supportive of each other in that last two days. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.